Today, week two of our look at the questions that Jesus asked. Some 300 questions in the Gospels that Jesus asked. And as I was preparing for this, I thought back on how some of the wisest people investing in my life spoke most powerfully when they asked just the right question to me. Sometimes the most powerful discoveries, the most transformational truths are on the other side of the perfect question. And that's how Jesus did some of his most profound ministry. People often came to him with a question and he answered it with a question or with a story, the kind of thing to draw us out and to lead us into truth. Now, be, be certain, Jesus had a lot of truth to say, but his questions are another opportunity to learn. And today, we're going to be in, in Mark chapter four as we look at this question. Why are you so afraid? I'm gonna ask you to turn there with me as we read this account of Jesus' calming storm, beginning at verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And so leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, And a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And then he turned to his disciples and said, why are you so fearful? You have such little faith. And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is the word of the Lord. This is July 4th weekend, we celebrate our independence, and it got me thinking about my father, who like many of his generation served in World War II. My dad served in the Navy, in both the Atlantic and the Pacific theaters, and an LST, I have a picture of it to show you. Any of you know what the LST was? It was a transport vehicle, it was a big flat bottom boat size of an aircraft carrier, but it get right up into shore and it could download all sorts of huge equipment and infantry. And it was on that boat that my dad went through Typhoon Cobra in December of 1944. Do any of you know the story of Typhoon Cobra? It was one of two typhoons that our fleet went through that actually did more damage to our fleet than any battle that they were in. Imagine what that was like. My dad said the LST would go up in the top of a wave and that would be dropped down and the whole thing would just wobble like this. And my dad has some fantastic stories about that. One particular guy got that Mae West life jacket on because he was sure this ship was not going to survive. As the typhoon went on, it was two days, December 18th and 19th. The one Mae West wasn't enough. He turned another one into sort of a panty Mae West. He had, he had one here and one here. He had a sack hanging from his belt, and my dad and his friends said, well, what's that? He said, well, that's first aid. You never know. We may need first aid. 
And then he went down and came back and he had a, a pistol on one side, an axe on the other side. And then finally he disappeared. He came back one more time. He had one more sack hanging and they said, well, what's that? And he said, sandwiches. <laughs> My dad said, he'd gone over. He'd gone right to the bottom and he could have walked uh, to land. But the most memorable story was of a young man, 18, 19 years old, who made the attempt to walk across an open area from one compartment of the ship to the other and didn't make it. He got frozen outdoors, held onto a pole, and just stood there, gripped with fear for 18 hours. No one able to move him. And I want to say, who could blame him? That's what I feel like when I hear this story that we've come to in Scripture. I want to say, who could blame the disciples for the fear? The Sea of Galilee is almost 800 feet below sea level. Almost 700 feet, 680. And it's surrounded by mountains and hills. And so I'm not a meteorologist, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll find out that that is a perfect breeding ground for these squalls that just sweep in over the ocean. It was not uncommon. If we take Matthew's account, and by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. The background is that Jesus has come through teaching the Sermon on the Mount, lengthy teaching, had preached to thousands, and then right after that, many people were healed, and the result was huge crowds following him to the point where he couldn't get away from them, but he was near the shore. And so the way he could get some space was to get on a, a ship. Jesus was exhausted, so it's no surprise that as quickly as they headed out to sea, Jesus fell asleep. But the squall was that devastating. Of course they feared for their lives, and who wouldn't? So how amazing that Jesus would ask them this question, why are you so fearful? Are you kidding? Look around you. There's no way we're going to survive this. And, and I think that was a proper assessment of their situation. Waves coming in, flooding them. They had every right to think they would not survive the storm. And yet, Jesus targets their fear in the midst of it. Now, the Bible gives mixed signals about the whole concept of fear. For instance, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But then, God has not given us the spirit of fear. Or how about this one? Perfect love casts out fear. The idea of fear in the Bible, if you just take it in its English form, is somewhat confusing. Are we never to have fear? There are those who think that. Well, in fact, there are three words in the Greek language that are translated as fear. The first one is Phobos, it's the word that we get all of our phobias from. The most commonly used word, it has no moral connection to it. There are things that it is altogether proper and right to be fearful of. We teach our kids stranger danger. We all know to be fearful of a live wire on the ground after a storm. We should have a healthy fear of heights. As Christians, we ought to have a healthy fear of the impact of our moral choices on the people that we love. That's what the Bible means by sober-mindedness. There are right things to fear, and then there are wrong things to fear. A couple of verses uh, speak to this. The first is in 1 John. Let's say this together. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear 
Because fear has to do with punishment. The person who fears is not made perfect in love. This is where a lot of people get the idea that Christians should never fear because we know the perfect love of God. That's an abuse of this passage, actually. It's talking about fear of a very specific thing. We're not going to turn to it today for sake of time, but I encourage you to go and read the whole chapter. And what you'll find out is that John is targeting the fear of our eternal demise, He's saying because we have professed Jesus as Lord, we don't live in fear of that anymore because we are now under the love of God, and the love of God casts out the fear of that eternal perishing. It's a very specific thing he's talking about. And in fact, the very same Greek word speaks of a healthy fear in relation to God in the next passage in 1 Peter. Say this with me. If you address as Father the one who will impartially judge according to each person's work, then conduct yourselves in reverent fear during the time you live on the earth. Same Greek word. So even in our relationship with God, there is both a broken fear where we think that God is just ready to lower the boom on us and, and, and we're constantly proving our worth and the love of God revealed in the cross and provided for us through Jesus Christ has removed that fear. But even though we are secure as Christians from our eternal loss, we will answer for how we lived in His name and that's what makes this fear not destructive, but it's a reverent fear. So you see, There are proper fears that drive us spiritually. Then there are destructive fears. A second word, eulabia, it's the one we speak about when we talk about reverential fear for the Lord. We find it in Hebrews chapter 12 where Paul writes, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe for our God is a consuming fire. This, this is fascinating, and this is worth a whole sermon. In fact, I think we did a sermon about this a couple years ago, and we did a series on worship about living in that balance of the reverential fear of God and yet the unconditional love and the love that we have for God. Theologians have categorized all of God's attributes, all the things that Scripture teaches of him under two great categories. God is great and God is good. So it's interesting, the first thing I learned to pray as a child, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for this food, became my primer for all that there is to know about God. It's that tension. God's greatness creates reverential awe. He's the great creator of all. He is all-powerful. All of creation not only is sustained by him, but answers to him. And yet, God is good. He is utterly and completely good. There's a proper reverential fear of God that actually heightens our love of God. You see, for too many, Christian religion has been all about the greatness of God. And that's a very mean, judging, legalistic religion. That's a religion that's angry at the world and wants to see God lower the boom on everybody. And that's what you get if it's just God is great. But the, the opposite is true too. If, it, if, if he's just a good God, it becomes cheap love. 
It's cheap grace. There's no accountability. It's just God puts up with everything because he just loves us. That's, that's not God. That's not even my wife. <laughs> Who puts up with that and yet is in control of everything? That's what allows us to tolerate sin in one another and in ourselves because we don't understand that that God that loves us unconditionally, that has called us to love him, is the great God who calls us to holiness. You see that? So there is a proper fear of God that is what's left when you take away the fear of eternal loss and embrace fully the love of God. It's a fantastic journey, and I'm still growing in that. Still understanding more deeply how God's greatness and his goodness play together in my life. Surrendering to him in awesome reverence and yet crying out to him as my Abba Daddy all at the same time. It's amazing. Now, let me ask you a question. Which of those two words do you think Jesus is using in this passage when he says, why are you so fearful? Neither. The word here is delia, fearful, cowardice, fretfulness, timidity, dread, a paralyzing fear that defeats our moral conviction. Jesus is speaking about a very specific and destructive type of fear that keeps us from our sense of security in Christ, like that young man frozen on my father's ship in the midst of the storm, that paralyzing, cowardice, fretful kind of fear. Now, this is used very sparingly in Scripture, but one place is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Would you say this with me? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, paralyzing fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. This is the type of fear that Scripture comes against in the believer's life. It's that paralyzing fear that keeps us from moving forward. And what this passage is saying is that we can be so gripped in paralyzing fear, cowardice, that the power of God is made useless in our life, the love of God does not create security in our life, and we lose all sense of our ability to make moral choices. That's how powerful this cowardice can be. Let's go back and look at that definition again, and let's explore the possibility of these things in our life. Cowardice. Fear that keeps you from doing the right thing, even when you know it's the right thing. I look back at my own life and recognize that when I was going through difficult things as a pastor, when my leadership was being challenged, it was cowardice that kept me from stepping up and saying the hard things because I wanted to preserve myself. And I convinced myself it was noble. I'll be a peacemaker. What I was was a peace faker. <laughs> I wasn't stepping up to say the hard things because I was fearful of the cost. It was that cowardice that kept me from, from doing the right thing. Fretfulness. What things keep you awake at night? You know what I'm talking about. How many of you go through that? Thank you, all three of you, for being honest. Thank you, Lord. What is it that worries you? The things that you think, I don't know how this is going to go right. And it robs you of your joy because your life is full of fretting. 
Some of you are so used to fretting, you're so addicted to it that you invent things to worry about. You have no reason to think things are going to turn out the way that you fear, but you go there anyway. What's that phrase? Our life is filled with worry about trouble, 99% of which will never happen. That's broken, paralyzing fretfulness that keeps us from embracing the joy of life that God calls us to. Just take a minute now on that note section, write down three things that you think are a source of paralyzing cowardice or fretfulness or fear in your life. They might be circumstances, they might be a person. Pause for a moment and target those things. And allow yourself to hear Jesus say to you, why are you so fearful? Now, this is a rhetorical question, right? Jesus not only asked the question, but he answers it. Jesus responded, why are you so fearful? You have so little faith. The issue here actually isn't fear, it's faith. This is an important thing that I want you to think about right now. The the size and direction of your faith determines the level of cowardice in your life. And here's another thing. You only get to measure it when it's challenged. All of us who have whatever faith we have and put it in Christ can can enter into life with God, but much of the impact of that faith on our life is theoretical until it's tested. The storms of our lives are a way of gauging the strength of our faith. I want to move on now and talk about three things that we can learn from this story that can free us from fear that are cause for growing our faith. The first, and this is something I think you need to get, and that is that storms are part of God's plan for all of us. If you have heard a version of Christianity that tells you you come to Jesus and everything will be great, it's not in here. Think about this. Jesus was the one that asked them to go into the boat and go out to sea. Do you think that Jesus knew what was coming? And yet, even with that knowledge, he's soundly asleep on his way into the storm. They're in that situation because Jesus said to them, let's go here. The same thing is true of us. If you're going to follow Jesus... He's going to take you into storms. Does God orchestrate the difficult situations in our life? I don't know. But I do know that God allows those things. He uses those things. They're a necessary part of your life. You will never grow or deepen in your faith. You will never become a person who is without cowardice if you don't find out how strong you can be in the storm when point two is a reality and point two is Jesus is in your boat. Jesus is in your boat. 
Now, we know that Jesus is going to calm the storm, right? We know that. But let me ask you a question. Were they any less safe when they were in the storm than when the storm was over if Jesus was in the boat with them in both times? Think about that. Were they safer after the storm than in the storm if Jesus was in the boat with them at all times? From a spiritual perspective, the answer is no. They were just as safe in the midst of the storm. Jesus calms the sea because the lesson was over. It was time for the application. The storm was part of his divine plan. Yeah, he knew where they were going. And, and by the way, they're going someplace. There's a purpose at the other side of the storm. There's a demon-possessed man that Jesus is going to heal. He has an appointment on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's calling his disciples to follow him into that. But Jesus is in the boat. This is a, a powerful principle in Scripture. We would prefer that God removes us from the storms of our life. We would prefer that. But what God does promise is to be with us in the storm. We see this principle throughout the whole of Scripture. God is the fourth man in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they're still in the furnace. God is the angel of the Lord in the lion's den with Daniel, but he's still in the lion's den. God is the shepherd who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and because of that we will not fear any evil, but there is still the valley of the shadow of death. And he is Jesus Christ in the storm, but there is still the storm. You see, this is what God promises, his presence in it. And that, that leads us to the third truth that ought to be a cause for freedom from paralyzing cowardice. And that is that Jesus is more powerful than the storm. Right? Yeah. And I want to tell you, he's more powerful than the storm even when you're in it. And you can trust him when you're in the storm. Because he's more powerful in that moment even as he is when the storm passes and we breathe our sigh of relief and take inventory about the spiritual condition that the storm reveals about our hearts and about our lives. And God says, why did you fear? Where is your faith? Remember, this is early in the Gospels. The disciples are still figuring out exactly who this man is who's in the boat. In fact, that's, that's how it ends. They're terrified at the beginning when they're in the storm. But then Mark says, even when the storm is over, it says they were still terrified. By the way, that word is phobos. This is how he says it. They were terrified asking each other, who is this man? That even the wind and the waves obey him. It speaks of the struggle of their lives right now. Why is their faith small? They still haven't figured out who Jesus is. The journey of the disciples is all about that discovery. And at this point, they're asking that question, but there will come a time, eight chapters from now, which is about a year and a half into the journey with Jesus, when he will say to them, have you figured it out? Who do you say that I am? 
And finally they get it because Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's right. It was that same Jesus that was with them in the boat. They just hadn't figured it out yet. And it's that Jesus that promises, I will be with you always to the very ends of the earth. He is in your storm with you. He will use it for good in your life, and he is stronger than that storm. And that means you do not need to fear it. Because even if the storm you're in is a fatal storm on this side of eternity, there is still safe harbor when this storm passes in eternity. See? Yeah. Oh, man. James 1. Let's close by saying this together. Dear friends, when troubles of any kind come your way, let's just pause. That covers it, right? Troubles of any kind. Some of you are saying, yeah, but mine, mine's different. No, no, yours falls under this. Yours is only different because it's yours right now. Let's change it. Let's say, when troubles of my kind come my way. Say that. Dear friends, when troubles of my kind come my way. Consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, and you will be complete, lacking nothing. You need the storms. God purposes and uses and leads us into the storms so that he can grow our faith. And he promises he's with you in it. He's more powerful than any of it. And he says to you, as he does so often to those that he loves, do not be afraid. Father, forgive us for keeping our eyes on the storm in a way that paralyzes us and teach us to keep our eyes on you and to know that we are safe in your arms, to let you grow our faith. Father, I want to be complete in you. I want to grow in you. And so I ask you to use the difficulties to make me complete. I pray that for every one of my brothers and sisters here today. And if you pray that, say amen. Amen. Amen.